So we are starting in Acts 25. So we've had a little bit of a break, and I thought it would be good to just kind of remind us of where we've come uh, and where we are before we get to, to Paul here in Acts 25. So a little bit of a background. Starting in Acts 18, Paul begins his third missionary journey in Syrian Antioch, which he subsequently ends that missionary journey in Jerusalem where he was arrested by the Roman Tribune, and which was, and, but those, uh, that arrest was based on trumped-up charges that Paul had incited a mob after he addressed the gathered Jews, stirring them up at the mention of Paul's going to the Gentiles. So when the Tribune was set to interrogate Paul by flogging, Paul informed the Tribune that he was, in fact, a Roman citizen by birth, and this led to Paul going before the Sanhedrin so the Tribune could find out what charges they had against, against him. It was during this trial that Paul uh, had a comment about the resurrection, and this divided the Sadducees and the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. And then shortly thereafter, the Tribune actually found out about the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish men who had, um, a, had taken an oath to kill Paul. This prompted the Tribune then to move Paul from there to, uh, to Caesarea as a Roman citizen to stand trial in front of the Roman governor or the procura procurator, over the region who was Felix, and we talked a lot about that last time. Paul was tried before Felix and some of the Sanhedrin leadership in Caesarea, but though the charges against Paul were not backed up by any sufficient evidence, Felix did not release Paul but kept him in prison for another two years. So at this point, Felix, according to Josephus, was called away to Rome to defend his treatment of a dispute between the Jews and the Syrians in Caesarea and is replaced by Portius Festus, which now brings us to our passage today. So, just a roundabout way, make sure we kind of have some good ground. And also, since this is a narrative, so a lot of the, the story in, in Acts is a narrative, a story in there, a narrative. And so I wanted to kind of break down for us a little bit of those pieces. So as we look at a narrative, what are some of those things that lead us and help us orient ourselves to the story and what God is doing? So, the cast of characters. So first we have Paul, which... I don't think we need any explanation. Paul's Paul. We have Portius Festus. Again, as a reminder, he's the Roman procurator, the governor of the region. And history books don't have a lot on this guy. He only was in the, his position for about two years before he died. Then we have King Agrippa II. This is the son of King Agrippa I, who was in Acts chapter 12. And King Agrippa I was a you know, really bad persecutor of the church. Um, he is also the great-grandson of King Herod, who was from Jesus' time. And then we have Bernice, who's the half-sister of uh, King Agrippa II, and unfortunately is, uh, has icky love interest with her brother, uh, which was well-known in the area. So a, role, a word about the roles of governorship here at this time, just in case anyone may be confused as to why Paul is going before a governor and not the king. So usually when I hear the word king, I think that you're going to stand before that person rather than a governor. But let's remember, who can tell me, who has the humanly sovereignty, sovereign rule over the land at this time? Rome does, yep. So Festus, uh, who is the governor, he is appointed by Caesar and at that time in the region, which included Israel, governors were in charge, Roman governors were in charge of public order, justice, and tax collection for the region they governed. So why is there a king? Well, what Rome had done is that they instilled what are called client kings. These are appointed by Caesar to provide tribute and soldiers to the Roman government 
in exchange for kind of a limited rule of that client state. So that's our cast of characters. Those are who's going to be um, first and foremost in, in the story today. Now we, our setting is Caesarea Philippi. It's around A.D. 57 to 59. And the conflict that we see in this story is Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea, which reaches two years after Festus uh, replaces, is replaced by Felix. I'm sorry, repl Festus replaces Felix. And now Paul presents his case before Festus and then subsequently to King Agrippa. Our climax for the story today is going to be Paul's appeal to Caesar. And the resolution of that climax is when Paul is presented uh, to King Agrippa by Festus. And then we get to that point right at the edge, right before that trial begins with uh, King Agrippa. Agrippa. But as we are going through Acts 25 today, there's two key themes I want you guys to kind of keep your eyes on. First and foremost is God's providence. We see that fully on display in this narrative. Uh, Paul's, uh, I'm sorry, God's providence is what Nathaniel had talked about a couple or several weeks ago, a couple chapters ago. And then God's true justice is our second thing that we're going to be looking at. God's true justice is the one that awaits the consummation of all things, right? Versus what is kind of the corrupt or earthly justice that we see today. So keep those in mind as we go through. But it helps us also as we're going through this and begs the question for us all, including Paul, is who are we going to trust? In the midst of all these circumstances, in the midst of what we are enduring and the, the situation that we find ourselves in, are we going to trust the Lord and what he's doing, or are we going to trust um, and put our faith in an earthly type of um, justice or situation? So I want to break down, so basically as the Bible has it in here, and I think a lot of our, our uh, titles are in there, we have uh, Paul before Festus as kind of the first part, and then we have Paul uh, before Agrippa. So we're going to jump right into Paul before Festus, in verses 1 through 12. So first, Festus is journeying to Jerusalem to visit the Jewish leaders. Would somebody read verses 1 through 5 for me? And after five days, wait, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning on they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, "Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him." Thank you. All right, so Festus, soon after uh, arriving on the scene where he, he is the governor, he, uh, he goes into an area where he is a governor. He goes up to Jerusalem. So as Tim mentioned last time, was that when you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. And when you leave Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. So we see here this, the same language, that, that Festus is going up to Jerusalem. He immediately meets with the Sanhedrin, which is the seat of power of one of the largest people groups in his, in a, under his charge. So as we read here, you know, we see that, that, that uh, they, they were wanting to still ambush and kill Paul. Like they, the Jewish uh, leaders, their, their desire was to still kill Paul. And they were looking to ambush him 
So they were trying to get Festus to agree to to take Paul from Caesarea back to Jerusalem to be tried so that they can ambush him. So whether Festus found out about the Jewish plot to kill Paul or not, we know that it's the Lord's sovereign hand that, uh, that governs all of the affairs of man. And so the, it was the Lord who was the one who kept Paul in Caesarea instead of moving him into Jerusalem at their request. But what do you think... So we, we've already kind of talked about that. We've already mentioned it. It's God's providence, right? But what is driving this? Where do we, how do we know? We actually have a, a really good... We actually have an insight. We don't always have an insight in God's direct plan for our lives. God doesn't always talk to us about that, but he actually does in this case. Do you all remember what happened and why do we know that this, what's driving this narrative flow? Blank stares. Paul preached the gospel. So Paul preached the gospel. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it. Go back to Acts 23. So after Paul preached the gospel and they didn't like it, verse 11 tells us, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul tells him right away that this isn't the end. You're not going to see the end of this road here in Jerusalem or even now in Caesarea because Paul remembers that the Lord actually was stood by his side and told him, you're going to actually testify about me in Rome. So this is what's driving this entire narrative now. We now see that this isn't going to end. No matter what comes up, no matter what happens in our situation, or Paul's situation here, Paul is going to Rome. Paul is going to, this is going to end, at least this part of the story is going to end in Rome. So that's what's driving all of this. Now we move to verses 6 to 11a. Richie, would you mind reading that, just, the, just verse 6 to the very first, uh, first sentence. sentence of 11? Yeah. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Can you go ahead and read the next sentence too? Sorry. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Thanks, Richie. All right, so now we see that Festus, uh, uh, as Festus will tell Agrippa later in verse 16, per Roman custom, it, the accused had the right to face their accusers in court to hear what charges they had uh, against them and what were being brought against them. So how did Luke categorize the charges against Paul? What was the phrase that was used? 
Well, in this passage, you're right. But what was what was the phrase used in this passage? Yeah, many and serious charges were brought against him. So it sounds pretty bad, right? It sounds like this is a big capital case against the Jewish faith as well as the Roman government. But what was the kicker about their charges? Couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove a single bit of it. It's kind of hilarious. I mean, it's, it's a very ironic situation that Paul is finding himself in. They, these charges, they were many and serious, but they couldn't prove a single bit of it. Imagine today a court is, 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 is convened and you bring many serious charges against somebody, yet you can't prove one single bit of it. I would hope that would then be uh, you know, jumped on and that, that people would, would get upset that this person was put on trial but had no bit of evidence that they could bring to it. But that seems a little bit crazy. But look how Paul defends himself. Paul basically just says, I didn't do it. And that was enough. <laughs> Paul basically just said, I didn't do it. Their, bad, their case was so bad that they didn't have any bit of evidence. And Paul's testimony and his, his defense was just super simple. And there was nothing that, that Festus or the court could really bring against him. And so Paul didn't even have to create a giant defense. However, we do find out what were the nature of the charges? So in verse 8, can somebody find out the three, the, nature, the three natures of the charges brought against him? Yep. So we see that the Jews were bringing against him charges that were related basically to their religion, and they were saying that this is against Caesar. So Paul's now in a court of Caesar. He's in a court that is of, of the Roman government. Um, Festus basically is coming to the realization that I don't see anything that, the, that may be against him uh, that was done by, against Rome. Uh, so this is seeming like a religious thing. So though Rome had set itself up basically as a kind of a flagship of, of government, uh, of justice in the land, we're starting to see that kind of crumble, Right. We're starting to see this, this theme that I mentioned before, that earthly justice, it may not be true justice, right? It's going to, there's going to be cracks. There's going to be uh, problems that we can't fully rely on all the time. So then why is Paul still there? Why is Paul still in custody? Again, God's providence. God's providence is, is one that not only works in the good gifts that we are given. God's providence also is in the hard providences that, are, that we endure in our life. And it's funny because I was reading in uh, Jerry Bridges' Trusting God recently, and he said this exact same thing. We're prone to really want to say, God providentially provided me this wonderful car. God providentially provided me this wonderful job or this family or whatever the case is. But we don't typically like to say, God providentially provided me this disease this sickness. We, we tend to shy away from that and say maybe God allowed this or whatever and, and using languages that maybe gets God off the hook. But we have to see this entire narrative. God is not, God's providence doesn't just provide the wonderful good gifts that we have. He also puts us through hard providences 
like this so that his name is glorified and exalted. And so we see, we're going to be seeing this as Paul walks through this time. Festus then asked Paul if he'd like to move the trial back to Jerusalem. And, it's, and again, just the more of the kind of the ironic, funny things going on here, the Jewish leadership could bring no evidence-based charges against Paul. Paul provides an excellent defense of himself, which I think even Phil, as, as a lawyer, should learn from how, for his next court case, what is going to get him you know, the, best, uh, the best win there. But yet Festus asked Paul if he wants to do this whole thing over again, this time in Jerusalem as a favor to the Jews. So we see Festus kind of bending to, to some of the Jewish leaderships and trying to get their favor, uh, though there is really no reason in this case to, to do so. Paul's response, at least in a just way. Paul's response is, I'm, in, I'm now in Caesar's court. You and they know I did no wrong against them, but if I did, then I'll gladly accept the just punishment for my wrongdoings. So now we move into our climax, as I said earlier. So finishing off where, uh, where Richie left off, uh, it says, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So this appeal to Caesar, I think a lot of us may have heard, but maybe we don't know exactly where it comes from. So about two decades prior to Christ's birth, Roman, Rome passed a law, which was the, and I'm going to murder this, I don't speak Italian, but Lex de Ui Publica, that's my best. I sounded super Italian, right? It's like, I'm going to make some spaghetti. Uh, but <laughs> Rome passed this law two decades before Christ, which forbade any magistrate to kill, scourge, chain, torture, or even sentence a Roman citizen who had announced his intention to appeal or prevent him from going to Rome to lodge his appeal there within a fixed time. So essentially what Rome had passed was this law that allowed Roman citizens to appeal their cases. And they could appeal their cases all the way to the top. They could go all the way to Rome, and if in a Roman government, they could not prevent them from being able to do this. They, the Roman citizens had a right to go before Caesar. So... <clears throat> Why did he appeal to Caesar? I mean, again, I didn't do it was enough to prove that he didn't do it. There, these cases were not, I mean, the, the charges were not any good. Paul basically says, I didn't do it. So why did he appeal? Acts 23.11. The Lord said that he will then, he will go from here to Rome to present the case, to actually to testify about the Lord in Rome. So God is moving this. Paul is, is, is a servant of the Lord, and he is just following this along. But also Paul knew he wouldn't get a just trial before the Jews and came to Festus, came not to trust Festus to receive a fair trial there either. And thus, as a Roman citizen, he had the legal right to appeal to Caesar. So Caesar didn't necessarily, so the Caesar didn't necessarily sit before every single one of these cases. He may have. But he also had representatives and that, would, uh, that would be appealing to Caesar and satisfy that. So whether it was Caesar or one of these representatives, they typically wouldn't overturn a lower court's ruling. It had to be something pretty substantial. But in this case, there actually is no case, nor actually is there a ruling. So Paul is actually going to be going before Caesar without any lower court ruling, really. And he's going to be able to go there as a Roman citizen. But let's not forget again. 
Who is moving this truly along? Is it the Jews? Is it Paul? Is it Festus or Rome? No, God is absolutely sovereign over this entire situation. His providence is guiding each step from the installation of a Roman law passed two decades before Christ that Paul is now using to ensure his passage to Rome. Festus agrees, will, and then he will move the case uh, from, from there in Caesarea to Rome for Paul to appeal before Caesar. But have you ever thought, as you've read through this passage, I'm sure, in your past, have you ever, I think we've all kind of thought through God's providence, but have you ever thought through that Paul's appeal to Caesar was even that appeal to Caesar, that ability for a Roman citizen to appeal and come before uh, the the highest person of the land, that is even a good gift of the Lord. It was a good gift because, again, remember, God's sovereign over all things, including acts of government. So this good gift, this appeal before Caesar, is good because by God's grace, the Roman government instituted this ability for its citizens to appeal their cases before Rome. So how does that translate to here? Well, think about your life. We're citizens here of the, of the U.S. We live here in the U.S. We have freedom that we enjoy, and even the affluence that we have. Are these just for us? Are these good gifts from the Lord given to us? Yes. Are these good gifts from the Lord to be hoarded for only our benefit? No. So we should see the money, the freedom, the citizenship, and all the benefits that that provides as not as uh, toys for our enjoyment, but as tools for the kingdom of God to advance the gospel. <clears throat> so we see that Paul was, the, the narrative takes us from where Paul was in his trial before Festus, the new Roman governor, to now he's being presented to, to uh, Agrippa and that trial that will come in chapter 26. So in verse 13, we see the arrival of Agrippa and Bernice. So in verse 13, it says, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So now that Agrippa and Bernice have arrived on the scene, remember what we said earlier about them. They're not really the most moral people of the land. They don't come from a long line of just and moral people, um, which includes his half-sister Bernice. So that, that we're, we're seeing kind of a tone that's being set here. Agrippa comes to Caesar. So... Agrippa is, is, is a king in, in a region actually to the northeast of, of Jerusalem, to the northeast of Caesarea. So we have Jerusalem down here at the bottom of a map, and over here on your side, kind of on the coast with Caesarea, well, Agrippa was more of here in the northeast. So he really wasn't even a king over that, the land of Caesarea or Jerusalem. But what he was doing was that typically, because now that they have a new Roman governor in the land, he was coming to pay homage to the, gov to, the, to, the, uh, to the governor, to Festus. So, you know, he's doing this because, again, he's not like a sovereign king, right? He's one that's appointed by the Roman governor. So, again, he's coming, he's coming to win brownie points, basically, right? He's coming to get the favor of, of Festus. But even in this, I think we see God's, God's sovereign hand, another touch point of God's providence being on display um, and we see what, what's happening here because what's happening is that, is that Festus, he's just heard and he's just had Paul tried before him. 
he doesn't hear anything that really is substantial, anything he can hang, hang his hat on. But Paul's appeal to Caesar, and he has to send him to Caesar, but what's he going to send him to Caesar for? There's nothing that he sees that Paul's violated. So, again, God's providence. He brings the king into the region, uh, or a king into the area to hear the case, and Festus is like, great, I can add your name to this report, and whatever you may see can help kind of you know, buttress my report that's going to be going to Caesar because I don't have anything against this guy. He made an excellent case. He said, I didn't do it, and he did it, right? <laughs> so we see another touch point of God's providence and another touch point where we see the contrast between earthly justice and true justice that God will bring. So now we go to Festus explaining his case to Agrippa. So would somebody read verses 14 through 22? Charlie? And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the uh, accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Thanks, Charlie. So just kind of two things about this passage. One is, is that, again, we're not, he's not really presenting a whole lot of new information, right? So this is basically a, a, a review of what was shared with, with Festus uh, during the trial. Um, and again, he's, he's saying in here, he's got the king's ear. He's, he says, this is my opportunity to get some help here on this, this report. So, but the thing is, is I didn't see anything wrong with the guy. Um, and, uh, but maybe, maybe something can be ha happened, help, helped out here. But interestingly, I do want to point out, because again, this is, this is Luke's account, right? So Luke is the author of Acts. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he does include something interesting here. He talks about how the Jews say that Paul is dead, and Paul says he's alive. He says, well, the Jews, he's, he's dead, about this Jesus who's dead, but Paul says he's alive. So, Festus doesn't seem to be necessarily swayed by Paul's testimony, like as the Jews aren't, that Jesus is truly alive. But I think what's interesting is, is that, you know, when we, when we point this out, I think, I think what, under the, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how we think about Christ, how we think about who he is, whether he's alive or dead, actually shows a lot about who we actually think of, how we actually think of him, right? 
because he could be just this historic figure. He could have been just this, this guy, and he died, and then there's no faith in him. But for those who have faith, we know Christ is alive, that he was resurrected from the dead. So we see that being played out here. And then Festus presents Paul before Agrippa in verses 23 through 27. Would somebody read those? It's okay. Yeah, okay, good. There's going to be a duke out there. I don't know. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. All right, so King Agrippa and Bernice, I love the way it's described how they arrive. They arrive with great pomp. It's just a, a cool way. I mean, it's just, so basically they're, they're arriving as this, this big old parade, basically. They've got King Festus and, and, and Bernice arriving. It's a military procession that's coming with them as well as bringing all the important leaders from Caesarea. And I don't know why, but I've got it in my head that it's like at the end of episode one in Star Wars when they have that big old thing going on. It's like, oh, it's a lot of partying and stuff. But I don't know, it just seems very Romanesque, you know, to think about. I don't know that they had, you know, I forget the names of the people, but, you know, the weird, the, uh, the people in the water. I don't think they had those there, but, you know, that one. <laughs> I can always count on you, Andrew. <laughs> So Festus launches then into this presentation of Paul to King Agrippa, indicating that he's found nothing deserving death when he tried Paul the other day. And maybe Agrippa can help a brother out to get some stuff for his report. But I, when I was going through this, I, look at verse 24. How is it described that the Jews were presenting the charges or, or to, to King Agrippa? How did Agrippa, how, I mean, sorry, to uh, Festus. What did Festus say that they were doing? They were shouting. So this, I mean, I think Paul was, through the Holy Spirit, was bringing truth. They were convicted. Their hearts were pricked. And they were running from the truth. They wanted him dead. They wanted him silenced. And I think we see that when we present the gospel to others, to those who are dying, who have the stench of death upon them. When we present that to them and, and God is not moving in them, they're going to run. They're going to shout. And I think we're going to see that. I mean, we're already starting to see some of that, right, in our culture today, that people are shouting against us because we, their conscience is pricked. So I, I thought that was a, an interesting little point that came in and into the narrative here at the end uh, about how that was presented. So, you know, that this is Paul before... Festus and right before Agrippa and then that's it it's kind of like one of those tv episodes where it's like a two-parter and they the camera pans from each person and then 
That's it. So maybe next week, you know, Lord willing, we'll hear more about what happens uh, on trial with Paul uh, before Agrippa. But some of the takeaways that I want to that I want us to, to chew on uh, for Paul's journey to Rome. First is God is sovereign. We see this littered throughout these passages of how God is orchestrating all events. Paul should have been released a long time ago because there was no legal reason, no substantial evidence to keep him in chains, but because the Lord wanted him to testify in Rome, to Rome he went. God's sovereignty works to bring him the most glory. So sometimes that providence is good, uh, uh, that God is enjoying his good gifts that he brings, and sometimes it results in hard providences that we are brought through to the glory of God. Second is justice will truly only be served in the end at the consummation of all things. We may not see justice here, but take heart, brothers and sisters. God is working in you a peculiar weight of glory that one day will right all the wrongs and result in praise and worship for all eternity. So don't give up if things don't seem fair now. Thirdly, don't see the freedoms and gifts given to you by the Lord as toys for your enjoyment, but as tools for the kingdom. Use everything at your disposal, your voting rights, your ability to secure good counsel at trials, your money, your family even, and your very breath. Use it all to the advancement of the gospel and the glorification of Jesus from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And then finally, we should ask ourselves as we leave, in the end, who are we going to trust? When the circumstances and winds of our life blow through, will we cave or renounce God? Or will we put our faith and trust in Him alone to carry us through, even the, through the hard providences that come? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for um, so many wonderful things that you give us here on this earth. So many wonderful circumstances, so many wonderful providences that we, uh, that we take great joy in and delight in. Thank you, Lord, for the breath that we have. But Lord, thank you also that you work through hard providences. That when we don't see how things are going to be good, we can go back to your word and trust that you work all things for your glory and our good. And like Paul, may we be ones who stand steadfast in, in faith, trusting that you will bring about your goodwill. And so whether we, whether we live or die, to, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, may we just trust you and put our, our faith and our, and our hope securely in Christ, because it is completely secure. Our eternity is secured, so we don't have to worry about what may happen today or tomorrow. We can just keep moving forward, trusting in you and bringing you honor and glory. And I pray that that would be today, whatever we've had this week, Lord. If we've had a good day, a hard week, uh, hard times, difficult family situations, difficult work situations, whatever it is, may we come and lay those burdens at your feet. May we cast them at the foot of the cross. And may we come and worship Christ who has said that he would take our burdens, that he would take our griefs and our sorrows, and he would bear them for us, and that, so that, and that we would then result in, in praise, and that you would be exalted now in Christ's name. Amen.